Well, welcome to Stars, Cells, and God. We have a special edition to share with you. We're going to be bringing in the eminent astronomer, uh, David Block, from the University of Witzwatersand in South Africa, uh, bringing him in via Zoom. He's actually going to be here in person at Reasons to Believe uh, come the fall as one of our visiting uh, scholars. And I met David Block when I was speaking in South Africa back in 1983, met him again in 1988. Uh, he's been to our office a couple of times since then, and uh, David and I both spoke at uh, you know, uh, Cambridge University back in 2005, and uh, we've had some communication since then. Uh, but it's wonderful to have him here uh, via Zoom. Let me just share a little bit about uh, David's credentials. He's an astronomer and highly sought-after inspirational speaker. I've seen him address audiences of 5,000-plus people in Africa. And so he's very popular uh, as a Christian uh, speaker and astrophysicist uh, in Africa and around the world. He's devoted over 40 years to encouraging audiences around the globe to see the engagement of how the Book of Nature reveals God and how the Book of Nature can bring people to the Book of Scripture and into relationship with Jesus Christ. Dr. David Block holds a Master's of Science in Relativistic Astrophysics and a Doctor of Philosophy in Astronomy. He's an Emeritus Professor in the School of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics at the University of Witzwatersand, Johannesburg, uh, South Africa. And as always, you can archive, you can actually view previous episodes of Star, Cells, and God on the Reasons to Believe YouTube channel. Uh, so if you're not a subscriber, I encourage you to subscribe. And uh, so you can tell your friends after watching this, hey, uh, you can download or view uh, the uh, video recording at the Reasons to Believe YouTube channel. And RGB underscore official is your gateway to all the social media platforms that's maintained by Reasons to Believe. And if you've got questions, uh, feel free to post comments uh, on the recording and all of our staff scholars at Reasons to Believe maintain a Facebook and Twitter page, and we do take your questions, and we do read your comments. So with that, I'm going to turn it over uh, to my friend, uh, David Block, and uh, you've got a special presentation for us. Well, it's really great, Hugh, to be live with you, and I trust that uh, the sound is good. And it is today, today. Uh, we can tell that it must be winter in South Africa. It's summer for us. Uh, just exactly. Right it's pretty freezing here. It's been going down to under 10 degrees at wow. night. So um, one needs a little scarf, otherwise you start freezing. <laughs> so Hugh, it's been very, very exciting. This uh, James Webb Space Telescope, has it not? It really has. I mean, I posted uh, five photos that have just been released from the James Webb Space Telescope on my uh, Facebook page. Over a quarter of a million uh, impressions so far. I mean, people are really excited. And I've been doing what you've been doing, David, just showing people side by side. This is the best Hubble Space Telescope image. And Absolutely. this is the special image from the James Webb Space Telescope. And wow, it really blows people away, just how much this telescope is revealing to us. Hugh, what's very interesting about this James Webb Space Telescope 
are the gold-plated uh, mirrors. But it's interesting, it's not just one mirror, but 18 mirrors, which actually fold up into a petal. This is an absolutely unique design, is it not? It really is, and uh, David, I had the privilege of actually going to Northrop Grumman and seeing the James Webb telescope up close and just yes. seeing how you can fold together, how it actually is able to get in. Uh, amazing. Well, utterly amazing, yeah. Well, 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 the gold, of course, is required to reflect as much light as possible, but of course, we'll get into that momentarily. So for the listeners out there, um, this is what the configuration looks like. Firstly, one can see that it's much bigger than the 2.4 meter diameter mirror of Hubble. Uh, this one is the world's largest space telescope, but it's specifically designed, is it not you, for infrared astronomy to which I've devoted over 40 years. Yeah, you're one of the world's foremost infrared uh, astronomer observers, particularly on galaxies. So I imagine you're really excited about this because it's it's an infrared telescope. And That's you're right. in an expanding universe, the more distant objects are going to be redshifted. So yes. you don't want this to be in the optical region, you want it to be in the infrared. Absolutely. And that is why is it not, Hugh, that it's at the L2 Lagrangian point, which keeps it really away. It's, it's always pointed. This is the wonder of this telescope. It's, the mirrors are always pointed away from the Earth, away from the sun. And that, of course, just optimizes one's observations so much. Now, I thought we might start with an introduction to the infrared universe and ask the question, why infrared astronomy? Why the great hype about infrared astronomy? And it occurs to me, of course, that uh, cosmic dust grains are extremely cold. We were talking about winter in South Africa here, Hugh. <laughs> this is a lot colder. <laughs> this is the dust grains are minus 253 degrees centigrade, um, which is 20 degrees above uh, absolute zero. And what's very interesting is that these dust grains actually shroud or mask an entirely different universe. I think of the verb mask, to camouflage, to make opaque, to disguise. And in order for listeners to understand this, Hugh, I thought that I'd show our skin here, which of course is a mask. We cannot see our spinal column, but without that we could not live. We need new eyes. And this is exactly what the James Webb Space Telescope does so effectively. So I'd just like to kick off you, if I may, with this little view graph, this photograph of the Via Lactea, the Milky Way galaxy. And you can see uh, copious dark lanes with straddling the Via Lactea. And it's not that there's an absence of stars there, it's that you've got a lot of cosmic dust, these grains of cosmic dust at a temperature of around um, 20 degrees above absolute zero. Hugh, you must, over the years, be greatly intrigued to think that we've now reached an epoch where we can actually look through this mist. 
Right, right. Well, I was a radio astronomer, and that was one of my motivations, is to be able to look through that dust and see yes. what exists behind it. Yes, and it really does, it actually does hide, and, um, and it, it shrouds a completely different universe. I often ask my students, what has negligible mass, but which really obscures everything. And of course, all one need remember is how effective mist is, or even smoke particles. This little photograph was taken when I was a visiting astronomer at the Australian National University in Canberra. And you know, Hugh, there's a valley, there's airports, there's schools, but you can't see anything. It's not that the dust grains are heavy as far as mass is concerned, but once the mist flows in, you cannot see what lies underneath these shrouds of mist or dust. But what was interesting over the years, and I remember we chatting about this, you and I first had the privilege of visiting reasons to believe in the 80s or early 90, was that uh, when you look, when I was a student and you looked up at the Milky Way, this is exactly what you saw the billions of stars and interlaced with these dark lanes of cosmic dust. But astronomers always had said that it was, a, that dust was a bit of a nuisance. But we actually proved, my team and I actually proved that astronomers had missed 90% of the dust mass in galaxies. That's quite exceptional view. Yes, it is. So in other words, we live, what we're trying to say here is we live in an exceedingly dust-filled cosmos and hence the need for the James Webb Space Telescope, which uh, Hugh has already emphasized is infra infrared. So this was the original year, this was the year in which all our actual discoveries were made, the initial ones. Um, that astronomers had missed 90% of the dust mass in galaxies. Dust lanes have captivated um, uh, astronomers for centuries, um, especially uh, the Milky Way. Uh, here's an, a beautiful painting by Truvolo showing you almost a spinal column of the Milky Way. But I'd like to start the conversation here, Hugh, if I may, with a pair of interacting galaxies, Messier 51, the Whirlpool uh, galaxy and its companion. And what you can see, if you look very closely at the companion, is that there are pockets of black cosmic dust grains everywhere, everywhere. And so I was very intrigued, this goes back to 1990 and around that time, to actually look at this galaxy, not with optical eyes, but uh, with infrared eyes. And I was astonished. Here is an optical um, image, uh, as you know so well, Hugh, of the companion to um, the Whirlpool Galaxy, you can see cosmic dust grains everywhere. But now I want to pull out the infrared image. And you can see that the backbone of the galaxy in the infrared is totally different 
totally different. You've got a beautiful symmetric galaxy uh, behind the uh, mask of dust. And also you have a strong suggestion of a bar, which you, a bar is simply an elongated central feature in galaxies. What does this really tell you, Hugh? I mean, it's exceptional the way you, you literally unveil the universe, unmask this galaxy, and you see something which you could never have dreamed of in the infrared. Definitely, I mean, with uh, the optical, you think you're looking at some kind of irregular galaxy. When you see yes. that hard feature, you know you're looking at a spiral galaxy. It's a completely different picture. It's just totally different, and it goes to show. Here we're looking at the gravitational well, if you like, of the companion galaxy, and we are seeing structures which we could never have dreamed possible. Uh, I've called these masks of cosmic dust, shrouds of the night, and that was the title of a book which listeners are welcome to order or purchase through Amazon if they are interested, a book co-authored with Kenneth Freeman, um, a great friend of mine in Australia, and it's called Shrouds of the Night. But it turns out that there's actually a duality of spiral structure, which means that the optical picture is one very, very small part of the totality of what we see. I'd like to show you on the left, this galaxy, called NGC 309. And in between the spiral arms, Hugh, is a galaxy you would have studied in the radio wavelengths, Messier 81. And you can right. see it's a gargantuan galaxy. This is to scale. And this galaxy, Messier 81, comfortably fits in the arms, between the spiral arms of NGC 309. But what's terribly interesting, is it not, Hugh, is that the dust-penetrated image on the right shows a completely different morphology. You see a bar, you see principally two, um, two dominant Fourier modes, two spiral arms. And I could not believe in 1990 or 1989 that I was actually looking at the same galaxy, Hugh. It's, it's amazing how the dust obscures the underlying structures, is it not? It really is. I mean, and uh, look at the different spiral structure. I mean, if you look at the optical image, you would draw a different conclusion about what are the predominant spiral arms. Yes, absolutely. And what we found in the infrared is that uh, you principally have two spiral arms, th uh, three, a pair of three are really quite rare. Now, I was visiting you, Hugh, in 1990, I believe, and right. uh, visiting reasons to believe. And uh, then I flew to Hawaii and imaged NGC 309. And I was so proud, and especially saying this tonight as a research scholar at RTB, that our um, research was featured on the cover of Nature. Would you like to tell listeners exactly of the impact of nature and its regard, um, what nature really is. It's of course not a gardening magazine. It's not a gardening magazine. It's a British journal, but is recognized as the foremost uh, physical science research journal in the world. And so getting published in nature is a huge honor. And you've been published several times. I've had the honor of getting published in nature myself 
Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's what kind of puts you on the map as an astrophysicist. And you got featured on the cover and not just once, but twice. It was so exciting, you know, Hugh, because I just saw this galaxy. I couldn't believe it was the same galaxies we were seeing in up with optical eyes. And of course, the nature editors immediately realized the impact. And I was so humbled and thrilled that they actually featured that on their cover. But the subject tonight is, is a dynamically open system. Now, there are two ways in which galaxies can actually form, if I might elucidate this here to the listeners. And that is, you've got a top-down scenario or a bottom-up scenario. Now, when I was a student, we were taught that the top-down scenario was the one that worked called monolithic collapse. What that means for our listeners is that you've essentially got an island, a proto-galaxy uh, of gas and dust, and then it collapses under gravity. It's isolated and collapses under gravity to form, for example, our Milky Way or other spiral galaxies. That's the top-down scenario called monolithic collapse. And that was actually uh, promulgated by some of the world's greatest minds. And of course, you knew one of them very well, Hugh. It was um, Egan, Lyndon Bell, and Sandage. And of course, I, was it not true that Sandage, in fact, attended one of your Sunday school classes, just as an aside? He did. He was a regular attender of our church, attended our Sunday school class. Uh, he opened up uh, the uh, Carnegie libraries for me to use to, to write my initial books. So yeah, we had a long friendship uh, after he became a Christian. I think I was one of the first people to actually speak to him after he gave his life to Christ uh, back in uh, 1980. That's incredibly interesting. I mean, he relayed that to me when I had lunch with him in Pasadena. And uh, it's, ex it's extremely interesting. He had this foresight that galaxies formed monolithically from a top-down scenario. But I started realizing, as you've already said, that I've been in this game about 40 years of studying the infrared uh, universe and galaxies, is that uh, things are very different in the infrared. Now, at bottom right is a very dear colleague and friend of mine, whom I'll be visiting after I visit RTB. And this is Professor Giovanni Fazio at Harvard, who's one of the greatest living uh, space pioneers, as you know, Hugh. He's over 90 years old now. And uh, he's the father of the camera on board, the Spitzer Space Telescope, which really ran as the forerunner. So this is an infrared telescope, and really acted as the forerunner of the James Webb. But what's very interesting is I decided Hugh, to use um, the Spitzer Space Telescope to try and image this galaxy, which listeners would know very, very well. And that is the Andromeda Spiral Galaxy, Messier 31, and uh, 2.5 million light years distant. And it looks like a fairly normal spiral galaxy, does it not, You, You can imagine monolithic collapse occurring here. You've got an island of protogalactic matter, and it just collapses and forms a beautiful spiral structure. Well, it's been referred to as the sister galaxy or the twin galaxy of our Milky Way galaxy. 
but it was your research that basically made the point it's radically different from a Milky Way galaxy. And that's for your infrared radiation experiment. Uh, by the way, we've cited your paper on this multiple times in our articles and books, a real breakthrough. Thank you so much. Well, it's always been a great privilege to wear the hat of RTB as a scholar for so many years now. And our friendship and our collaboration just spans some decades now. And so when I looked at this galaxy, Messier 31, I just thought to myself, well, let's just see what this galaxy might look like through the eyes of the infrared Spitzer Space Telescope. And again, one couldn't believe one's eyes because on the left is your optical image and on the right is the Spitzer Space Telescope image in the infrared. And what immediately strikes one's attention here are the glowing rings of fire. Uh, you can see principally two rings of fire. And the point is immediately I started thinking, how do you produce these incredible rings which you just don't see in the optical domain? How do you produce glowing rings of fire? And so we discovered these two rings. And what was so exciting, Hugh, is that you know, here I'm sitting at the bottom of the African subcontinent, South Africa. And uh, this was a press release by NASA and JPL at Caltech and myself showing the two rings of fire. And it became very obvious that there's been a massive near head on collision between Messier 32, which I've got in a little square or rectangle at the bottom. And what it, the analogy is like this. You take a stone and you hold it above a pond of water at an oblique angle and you let the stone go. And then of course ripples start emerging on your pond of water. And uh, we are principally imaging two ripples. What, we are what we've proven here is that the companion galaxy, one of the companion galaxies to the Andromeda galaxy, Messier 32, has actually almost collided uh, with Messier 31, and that overrules monolithic collapse, does it not, you? Because it means we're dealing with a dynamically open system, a system which interacts with its environment and continually changes second by second. And it's a relatively recent encounter. Uh, so I read your papers like about a half billion years ago. That's that correct. You passed through. Yes, it was. It was not, it's not in the distant past at all. And in right. fact, um, that's the uh, discovery uh, paper, which you've read uh, many times. Um, and that was the team, including Giovanni right Fazio. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, lovely. I'm really touched. And uh, all the names are there, as I say, including Giovanni Fazio, uh, also featured in Oh, multiple sites across the world, Hugh, including Fox News and so forth and so forth. But basically, these are simulations, uh, minus 35 million years pre-collision, 100 million years post-collision, and then the collision is around 210. That is our best estimate. And that collision between M32 and uh, the Andromeda galaxy would have produced these glowing sets of rings. So what we are saying now is that in our local group, 
Now, immediate galactic neighborhood, 2.5 million light years away, we can overturn monolithic collapse. And we can actually prove that galaxies in our immediate neighborhood, I mean, this is our nearest large spiral galaxy, uh, has formed not from top down, but from bottom up. We always were taught you that this only happened at high redshift. And I'm starting to think of the deep field, the Hubble deep field. You know, you think you've got collisions occurring, but this is right on our doorstep. What do you make of this? You, I mean, it, it really does turn Sandage's idea upside down, does it not, of the monolithic well, it does, and it also shows you that even the pass-through of a relatively small dwarf galaxy can have enormous effects on the spiral structure. I mean, look at yes. that top figure. Uh, you've got a highly symmetrical spiral arm structure, a lot like what we see in the Milky Way galaxy, uh, but the moment that M32 uh, passes through the spiral arm structure, Look yes. at the dramatic disturbances. And yes. so this completely uh, upsets the structure of the Andromeda galaxy, something we see to this day. I mean, we're a half billion years later, and we can still see the incredible distortions of the spiral arm structure. I think you've hit on a key point there, Hugh, is that you don't need a massive companion. Uh, just right. like with Messina 51. This is a tiny little elliptical companion, but it acts as your stone in the stone water right. analogy. You drop your stone in the pond, there the ripples, but you don't need a rock. You just need a little pebble and you drop it onto your pond and you get these propagating waves in this case of star formation. We do. And uh, you know, as we look at other spiral galaxies that are the same size as Andromeda, I mean, both Andromeda and the Milky Way come in a little more than a trillion times the mass of our star, the sun. But what we're recognizing is what we see and what you've done here and the Andromeda galaxy, this is not exceptional. This is typical. If you look at other spiral galaxies, we're mm -hmm. seeing the similar distorted spiral arm structures. Mm -hmm. uh, what's unique is our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, we see that it has this highly symmetrical spiral arm structure indicating what's special about our Milky Way galaxy. It hasn't had any encounters uh, with dwarf galaxies the size of M32. But I wrote an article just a few months ago based on new research uh, looking at the subgiant stars yes. and, uh, in our galaxy, basically demonstrating if you go back 11 billion years, our Milky Way galaxy had two major encounters with large dwarf galaxies. Mm -hmm. Over the past 11 billion years, we've only had encounters with really tiny dwarf galaxies, something that's actually necessary to sustain the spiral structure. And mm -hmm. so I think this is a new design feature, David, is that our mm -hmm. Milky Way galaxy has had the just right diet of consuming very tiny dwarf galaxies on a regular basis without any encounters with dwarfs as large as M32, which is why advanced life is possible in our Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy and all the other large uh, spiral galaxies that we see are not candidates. I love your words, Hugh, that it's had the correct diet. And that is true. Uh, people don't realize, and of course we're going to go into this, but you see the fingerprints of God, not only at high redshift, but also at low redshift. 
and uh, people don't realize <laughs> that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's terrific. Now keep going. Good. Okay. So um, collisions occur within our local group of galaxies, and so enter the James Webb Space Telescope. So yeah, what do we briefly, uh, David? I mean, yes. this is remarkable what you said. It even happens in our local group of galaxies. Yes. But as we look at the thousands and thousands of groupings of galaxies that we see in the neighboring clusters and superclusters, our local group is under dense. The galaxies are relatively far apart. We have no giant galaxies, mm -hmm. two large galaxies. Mm -hmm. And even though we're in a relatively under dense grouping of galaxies, even here, these th events happen. And so mm -hmm. it's got to be more predominant elsewhere in the universe. I think that was what took me by such great surprise, Hugh, was that um, right here on our doorstep, a classic textbook, SB, Hubble type SB, <laughs> Galaxy Messier 31, starts looking like, in terms of with collisions, that, you know, that teaching us the lessons, which we normally would only see at very high redshifts into the distant past, but to have it occurring right on our doorstep was the sort right. of key to sort of the knife, the dagger, as it were, to say to astronomers around the globe, monolithic collapses out and dynamically open systems, meaning systems interacting dynamically with their companion galaxies, for example, like Messier 32, is the way galaxies actually form. And in a sense, you, we're looking at the mind of God here, are we not, in that um, this is the way he has instituted the formation of galaxies. He doesn't just uh, start the universe rolling uh, deus ex machina, as it were, and just leave everything alone, but you've got a very highly complex system of dynamical involvement that's what I love about his creations so much. Would you agree, Hugh? It's at all size scales and at all time periods throughout the history of the universe. So it's a God that's intimately involved in the entire extent in history of the universe. And uh, David, I mean, we just released my latest book, Design to the Core, where I yes. make the point we not only see uh, this evidence for overwhelming supernatural design in the early part of the universe, on the largest yes. size scale, we see it on every size scale and at every moment throughout the history of the universe. Ubiquitous. Mm. And I like what I see in scripture where it says that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything at all, which Wonderful. would imply that everything that God creates has a redemptive purpose. And mm. I don't know about you, but I've been engaging my scientific peers who are not yet believers and saying, look, I know you're not a believer like I am, but if you will do your research from a biblical redemptive perspective, it will make you a better scientist. You'll be more successful mm. making discoveries because this is the key to understanding why the universe looks the way it is, why the earth looks the way it is and everything in the book of nature. Mm. I think that's right. You know, Hugh, when I started this research, some. Um, 35, 40 years ago, God gave me a little verse in Isaiah, which you know well, that he would give me the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches 
of secret places. And that's exactly what's uh, happening here. So God, who's created all of these galaxies, was initiating and getting my mind tuned. Behold, I'll give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places long before I actually started the research in Hawaii and elsewhere. But Hugh, turning now to um, the image which was um, uh, released by President Biden, we see that dynamically open systems like the Andromeda Galaxy actually also can be seen a mere 800 million years after the uh, Big Bang phase. And Hugh, I'd love you just to enumerate, um, perhaps I'll just start the discussion if I may, and I'd love you to pick up uh, with your expert eyes as to what we are also seeing here. But I just want to comment on one thing with regard to dynamically open systems is that we're looking at around uh, 13, 13 and a half uh, billion years back in time. We're looking at around 800 years um, after the actual Big Bang. And you can see all these fuzzy galaxies. Now, if you imagine that you take the Andromeda galaxy and you push it further and further and further and further back, you'll also start seeing blobs if you transport it back into time. And so this is a beautiful tie-in, is it not? It's a balance, Hugh, that at the very high redshift in the very distant universe, we've got these galaxies which are gobbling up and other galaxies and little elliptical galaxies going through them and so forth. But, but uh, all bear the signature of God, whether you're looking back very long distance timescales around 13 and a half billion years, or whether you're looking to the Andromeda galaxy 2.5 million uh, light years away, you sort of see this dynamically open secret, don't you, Hugh, on the largest of scales? You do. I mean, when I was at Caltech, uh, one of my colleagues was Robert uh, Kirshner, uh, yeah. and he's now at Harvard. Uh, but he was yes. the one that coined the term uh, the end of greatness. And, you know, he was referring that, you know, we keep seeing this exquisite design of the universe that makes the universe habitable as we look farther and farther away. Yes. But we reach a point uh, where we don't see that exquisite design. Well, I yes. prefer to put it the other way. I call it the beginning of greatness, that you come from the Big Bang creation event. The space-time theorems tell us that that's generated by an entity beyond space and time. He creates matter, energy, space, and time. Yes. But as soon as you get past the large-scale structure, you begin to see this greatness, this complex, exquisite design. Everything just right to make possible future existence of advanced life. And it amazes me that people who are not even followers of Jesus Christ that are doing this research, see this incredible great design in the cosmos. You know, Hugh, you've touched on a very important point is that truth and beauty are inextricably linked in marriage, I would say, is that the more you study, we, not, we are not being uh, robbed of wonder here. We are, this image is infused with uh, a revelation, I would say, of God's oh. greatness and of his mind. Now, talking about his mind, Hugh, we see these gravitational arcs everywhere. 
And of right. course, what's happening is that light from these very distant galaxies is passing a nearby cluster, foreground cluster. And it tells us that space time is not flat in the presence of gravitational force fields, but it's actually curved as Einstein predicted. To me, this is also just hats off to the Jewish Albert Einstein. You know, I've been very involved you in writing a chapter for reasons to believe on how can a Jew believe in Jesus in the light of the Holocaust and things like this. But to me, I have to, as a Jew, take my hat off to another Jew, Albert Einstein, because this is a verification of his general theory of relativity, is it not you? What well, really is, and you must be thrilled by this image from the James Webb Space Telescope, because when you compare what you saw from the very best image of Hubble of the same cluster of galaxies, you could see a few gravitationally uh, lens background galaxies. But you yes. look at this image, it's not just two or three, we're seeing yes. dozens. And yes. so I think this is exciting. Uh, we're not only gonna be able to use a James Webb Space Telescope, but look at these detailed images by the James Webb of clusters of galaxies where we get a magnification factor, sometimes of thousands of times. Correct. And this is going to give us an even deeper look into the early history of the universe. I think this is an unexpected benefit uh, from the James Webb Space Telescope. It is extraordinary. And when one realizes that uh, 18 mirrors have to be specially aligned I mean, the thing was folded up, as you said, to be launched into space. And the alignment is absolutely pin sharp. I mean, look at the diffraction spikes around one of the, or a couple of the foreground stars in the Milky Way. It's absolutely exceptional. But I think what I'm so excited by, Hugh, is a little verse in scripture that he sustains the universe by the power of his command. You're seeing the signatures of God here everywhere but you're seeing as you've pointed out already a highly complex system i think this is important is that you know for example light is not traveling along uh straight in along straight lines but null geodesics are curved in the presence of gravitational force fields um it's a remarkable image and i could study it for hours upon hours and it's a tiny swath of the sky is it not you it's the equivalent of holding a little dust grain i'm told at arm's length that's the tiny little section of the sky imaged here by james webb well it is and when you look at the hubble ultra deep field that was a one million second uh you know uh, observation this was done in a fraction of the time and it's yes. just as deep as the Hubble's ultra deep field. So it's yes. like, we're gonna get a lot more astronomical discoveries per unit time. I mean, mm. some astronomers know says, we're gonna get a hundred times the throughput mm. that we can get with the uh, uh, Hubble Space Telescope. Absolutely. And I think that is just so, so exciting. And I would like to now just highlight one of your many books, you. And uh, here you've got the antennae galaxies, I believe, NGC 4038, 4039, interacting, again, a dynamically open system. But the universe is not just created in any haphazard way. I love your title, 
why the universe is the way it is. But I was very touched, Hugh, in preparing the talk for tonight that you've got a dynamically open system like M31 right on the cover. So you've been right hitting the, to the heart of it all. Yeah, this is no ordinary spiral galaxy, is it? <laughs> not at all, not at all. And then again, and then again, you can see in an optical image here, all the cosmic dust lanes all over the place. So imaging this in the infrared with, with uh, the James Webb in due course will be absolutely uh, breathtaking. I love a little quote of yours, Hugh, which I'd love to read and then I'd love you to expand on. And if I may just quote it, Hugh, I quote, if the universe is created, then there must be reality beyond the universe. The creator is the source of life and establishes its meaning and purpose. To study the origin and development of the universe is in a sense to investigate the basis for any meaning and purpose to life. Cosmology has deep theological and philosophical ramifications. I'd love you to just expand on that a little bit here. It's just so profound. Well, you know, you also saw this in why the universe is the way it is. You look at the universe and, you know, like you, I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, yes. And it wasn't until I came into my late teenage years, I thought, you know, astronomy tells me there's a beginning. I need to find that beginner. I went yes. through the world's holy books. But what I saw unique about the Bible, it's a two creation model. God creates the universe to be a tool in his hand to eradicate evil and suffering once and for all, while he enhances the free will capability of yes. us humans to yes. express and receive his love. That's something yes. you see in no other religion. It's unique to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it's something that the heavens declare. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. Wonderful. Psalm 97, yes. it says it declares the righteousness of God. So it's mm -hmm. not just showing us how powerful and majestic God is. It's actually showing his multiple purposes in designing the universe the way he did. He designed it not just to provide a home for his human beings to exist in. He also designed it in such a way to be a tool uh, to show us a path of virtue, to avoid evil, to literally eradicate evil and suffering once and for all. All the laws of physics are fine-tuned to make that happen. And the idea that God loved us so much and he wanted to design his universe to fulfill a dozen distinct different purposes. And yes. it meant that the universe had to have two trillion galaxies in it. Yes, that's another point. Yes. Billion stars. Mm -hmm. God did not think that to be too expensive in order to endow us human beings with the capability of having this strong free will where we can experience strong love, express strong love, and yet at the same time, have evil and suffering eradicated once and for all. To me, that's a mind blower. And as I look at the- It cosmos, is, it is, it you know, is. This was an investment that God thought was completely worthwhile. And of course, it includes a creator of the universe himself, come here to planet earth. And- Wonderful. You know, yeah, dying on the cross and saying, look, I'm prepared to trade my moral perfection for your moral imperfection. I'll Wonderful. take upon myself your moral imperfection. 
so that you can become morally perfect. That the creator of the universe himself would do this for me and for every human being who is willing, that to me is a real mind blower. You know, Hugh, that's just so beautifully put. And also, as a Jew, it struck me, the following thought struck me. And that is, you know, of course, as you've spoken about many times and your staff, such as Ken Samples, have to the duality. Uh, you've got the book of nature and then the book of scripture. But what's very interesting, thinking wearing a Jewish hat for a moment, is that Abraham had no book of scripture, right? Abraham had no book of scripture. He only had the book of nature. I mean, God, in fact, said, look up and look at the stars. So this is something which people don't really realize is that perhaps, or many people might not realize, that Abraham didn't have Psalm 19, for example, the heavens declare the glory of God. But, but God said, look up. And that was enough for him to start understanding some of the wonderfully hidden yet revealed characteristics of our Lord and Savior. Isn't that wonderful, Hugh? It really is. And if you go back to Abraham's time, they didn't have light pollution. They didn't have air pollution. Yes. When he looked up at the sky at night, he could see 15,000 stars. He could yes. see the Milky Way in great detail. And here we are in the 21st century, the majority of human beings live in big metropolitan cities. I don't know about Johannesburg, but when we live here in the Los Angeles basin on a really clear dark night, we might be able to see 30, maybe 40 stars. And it so they start declaring to us what they declared to Abraham. And I've been to some of the big Asian cities on a really clear dark night, you look up, you can't see a single star at all. In fact, it's a challenge to see Jupiter and Venus, mm. let alone mm. any of the stars. Mm. It's like, mm. you would read that verse, the heavens declare the glory of God, while people in Shanghai and New Delhi said, they're not declaring anything to me. It's even hard to see the moon. <laughs> oh, no. However, we may not have the kind of clear sky uh, that Abraham had, but we've got the James Webb Space Telescope. Yes, So beautiful. this is how God in the 21st century is declaring the glory of God. And you don't have to be an astronomer. All you got to do is have access to the internet and you can see these incredible images that the James Webb Space Telescope and there are other amazing telescopes as well. I mean, you're in South Africa. That's where yes. they're building the square kilometer array. Absolutely. Feeling the glory of God like we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that God is balanced. He gave Abraham those 15,000 stars he could see with the naked eye in the 21st century with all of our technology. He's given us a James Webb Space Telescope, a square kilometer array, uh, the extremely large telescope, which is soon mm -hmm. online. I mean, God blesses every generation with the glory revealed in the heavens. And I think that's so beautifully put. And I think there's another very important point is that, of course, with all your training in Toronto and elsewhere, um, you could start seeing the fingerprint of God, which, of course, the title of one of your books, early on in your career, Hugh. And it really unfolds. But it's now with the technology, we're able to probe, not as, I've, as, as we've discussed, not only in the optical domain, but in the uh, near infrared as well. Now, Hugh, there was also this image. Um, yes. 
Uh, and this is really just uh, so beautiful of uh, Stefan's Quintet, I believe. And I've indicated the uh, new general catalog numbers. And uh, again, you can start seeing, if you look very closely, that there are dark regions. There, I see cosmic dust lanes everywhere. And I was so excited to learn that uh, James Webb had imaged uh, this area. Again, a set of interacting galaxies, just like in Andromeda, just like in our very local group, but just a little bit further away. But I was very keen to see what this specific optical image would look like, would be transformed when we start wearing infrared eyes using cameras on board the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. And right. there you are. And, uh, you know, Hugh, when I first saw this image, um, again, it starts to show me the, uh, the secret is revealed, is it not? That it's the, the secret to galaxy formation, the secret to galaxy birth are dynamically open systems, which is the title of our talk. But the rich detail is extraordinary, Hugh, as my eye scans the background. Uh, but what's very interesting here is, again, you're looking at the very backbones of galaxies through infrared eyes. It's extraordinary. It really is. And I was also struck by what's in the background. I mean, the Hubble Space Telescope image it revealed a lot of detail about these five galaxies. In the infrared, we see a completely different picture of the structure of these galaxies. Uh, even of the nearby galaxy, we see mm. over to the left. Uh, that looks quite different from what we see in the optical. But then you look at the background, and you're literally seeing hundreds of these very distant galaxies. And what amazes me is overseeing just how many of them are small spiral galaxies. Uh, yes. Something that we would expect from a Big Bang creation event, and this image beautifully does that in the same way that the image of that uh, 4.6 billion light year away uh, cluster of galaxies. Yes. And these are just the first images in the first couple of weeks of a research by the James Webb Space Telescope. We're just getting started. What an exciting future we have here. And they tell you that James Webb has got another 30 years. I mean, what do you anticipate that we're going to see, say, in the next year from the James Webb Space Telescope? Any speculations? I oh, know. I think that it's going to confirm over and over again what we've been seeing locally. I mean, my studies and that of my teams has been studying the nearby universe, as you know, low redshift, in fact, not, right. not the local group, but low redshift. But I think what's very interesting here is we had John Mather fly out to my first astronomy conference in 1996. And he reminded me, Hugh, yesterday or the day before, that that was the first time he spoke publicly about the dream of having an infrared telescope in space. So I was, again, it's just wonderful the way God causes all our paths to cross in such an open, dynamically open way. He gives us the free will and yet he orchestrates everything, whether it be this interacting system of galaxies or whether it be our own lives. 
I think it's just so neat that John Mather reminded me that it was in Johannesburg that he said he first publicly announced, as it were, that you know he has this dream for um, an infrared space telescope. Very but good. Hugh, I suppose we've learned much over time. We are going to learn much more as we penetrate shrouds of the night. I was deeply taken, of course, by this infrared image. Uh, oh, that's a mind blowing for me too, David. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. look at all the detail you see in this little tiny part of the Carina Nebula about star formation, just the interacting gas clouds you got there. And I'm excited about the potential for astronomers to look at this part and actually measure the velocities and the temperatures of these different gas clouds. I think this is going to reveal details of star formation uh, that are going to be really exciting. And you know, Hugh, what it does emphasize is what we tried to say all those years ago in 94, is that dust is an essential component of the universe, not just uh, a smattering at 10%, but we said already in 1994, you've missed 90% of the dust mass in the universe. And now uh, this is all you know, beautifully confirmed. One image after another is showing you image of incredible detail. But Hugh, I just love to see the solar winds, the stellar winds rather, from these natal stars carving out, eating out structures within these giant molecular clouds of gas and dust. I mean, the analogy here for our listeners is really, you know, a pregnant wife might see a gynecologist, right? And he uses um, ultrasound scans to just check on the fetal development of the baby, or in our case, babies, as, as you know, Lizette twins. But right. the, the interesting thing there is, this is the point I want to make, is that in scripture we read, and God made man from the dust of the earth. And I think that's why I've always been so excited about the realm of the, the path, the, the trajectory God led me on to, as regards infrared astronomy, Hugh, is that it's the veritable stuff of which you and I are made. He made us, we are made from carbon-based stardust, which is revealed here with, to unprecedented, with unprecedented detail in the uh, James Webb telescope image. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I showed on my Facebook page a comparison of this Crete Nebula for the very best Hubble image. And yes. the Hubble image, you could get a little hint of some of these uh, uh, darkened uh, clouds, but just a hint, here you get all this detail. And uh, you know, this is one of the more distant interstellar molecular clouds. There are ones that are much closer. We're gonna really uh, have a tremendous breakthrough, in my opinion, on the details of star formation. As you're probably yes. aware, this is debated within the Christian community, to what degree is star formation going on today? You know, people interpret Genesis 1, that maybe it ended on creation day four. James Webb is gonna settle this once and for all. Yes, and I also think, you it's so beautiful the way James Webb will actually help us even explore Genesis to greater depths in the following sense. In the beginning, God says, let there be light. 
And of course there's light, the radiation dominated epoch of the Big Bang. And then later on, and then he made the stars also. He makes the Hubble deep field. He makes the James Webb deep field. It's, there's no way in the world that any writer of Genesis could have dreamt that before all any matter was formed, there was pure radiation, only light. Well, that was a big factor in my becoming a Christian is reading the creation text in the Bible and realizing it was accurate and what it was stating about the scientific details of what it was describing. It yes. was actually predicting future scientific discoveries. And you see that in no other holy book. You know, and I looked at the Hindu Vedas, the Quran, the Zoroastrian writings of Buddhist commentaries. They would mention, uh, you know, science and creation. Uh, but nowhere to the extent that the Bible did, with nowhere near the sensitivity and nowhere near the accuracy. I mean, I spent two years trying to find a scientific error in the Bible and couldn't do it and realize this book that I'm holding must be inspired by the one that actually created and designed the universe so that I could be alive. I think it's beautiful that God who transcends space and time enters space and time and enters our temporal restricted spatial framework and touches the cripple and says, be whole, uh, your sins be forgiven thee. I think it's just so wonderful that the awesome power of the creator, he doesn't leave the universe, is it not so true, Hugh, in a distant sense to just uh, develop with time, but he's inextricably involved moment by moment in uh, the starry handiworks he's created. He sustains the universe by the power of his command. And also, of course, does it not remind you of John chapter one? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I think we've got here the written word of God in the heavens displayed in the most awesome way, as you've said, Hugh. Well, it says in John 1, 3, that God's light has gone out into the entire world. It's penetrated the heart of every human being. And we yes. see his light revealed in the universe itself. I like what I see in First John, it says God is light. But it's yes. referring to a different kind of light, a spiritual light, where it says in John, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, this is what God's light is. It's truth, it's life, and it's love. And God sends that to every human being. And he's revealed his power through what we see in the creation. As it says in Romans 1, it not only reveals the existence of God, but his particular attributes and his incredible love uh, for life and human beings in particular. How can anyone turn down what God is offering us? Absolutely. So how can God ever turn down? And Hugh, just to conclude our little podcast, this is an image I took uh, in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, I was a guest several times, as you know, of the European Southern Observatory. And again, far from any city lights, but again, you see these clouds of cosmic dust everywhere. These, this is a stellar maternity ward and these dark clouds pervading uh, temporal space and time. The Rosette Nebula, which you know so well, again, filled with these beautiful uh, elephant-like trunk structures 
of cosmic dust. I think what James Webb is telling us, Hugh, is that infrared astronomy is here to stay. But I love this little quote, which apparently comes from Abraham Lincoln. And he says, I see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist. But I cannot conceive how a man could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. I was just so touched by this, and I'd love your thoughts on that too, Hugh, as we well, wrap this up. Yeah, it tells us in Romans 1 that uh, God has revealed himself through his creation to every human being. I mean, not everybody might have a Bible in their possession, but we all have the book of nature. And all we need to do is look up and we can see the vastness of the stars, the Milky Way galaxy, and realize this has to be placed there by a very powerful uh, creator. And how he designed it all uh, tells us he's not only powerful, he's incredibly intelligent uh, and he's very caring. Look at all he did to make possible a home for us human beings. And you know, we look at our sin and say, you know, we can't stop from disobeying what God wants us to do. What human has ever been able to live up to the conscience, the law that God has written on our hearts? But as we look up at the heavens, we realize there's a God behind it all who is so powerful, so loving, and so wise. He must have done for us what we can't do for ourselves. And in his great love, he has provided for us what we can't provide for ourselves. And as Job said in the 19th chapter, before scripture was even available, is that he looked at nature and says, I know that my redeemer lives and I will see him on the last day. He knew that God would do for him what he couldn't do for himself because of the majesty and the love and the power that he saw in God's creation. And so this is something available to all humans, which is why I think God gave us a planet with a transparent atmosphere where we could look beyond our planet and see everything that God has done to make possible, not just our existence, but for us to really thrive and really experience uh, the love, uh, you know, a loving being, a God who had love. And we worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were in a loving relationship with one another. And so Christianity alone answers the question, where does love come from? Uh, you know, we experience love is because the creator himself had love before he created anything at all. That's Any so It's so precious to know that, um, well, I can look up just like you can, and we can say, for I know that I know that I know that my redeemer liveth. If any listeners are interested in um, following our thread a little more, there is a book, Hugh, which of course you know well, God and Galileo, again co-authored by Professor Kenneth Freeman, who's one of the pioneers on dark matter. And this, this little book explores the harmony between the book of nature and the book of scripture. And there's a great harmony, as was pointed out by the genius Galileo Galilei, and it's a harmony which we continue to see as these uh, larger earthbound telescopes and, of course, larger space telescopes are actually uh, in orbit at various points above the Earth. 
But Hugh, I'd love to just wrap up and end, if I may, and then have you conclude with this little picture. Because to me, this sums up John 3.16 in a nutshell. Um, it's looking up. It's a father and a son looking up at the uh, full moon. And there's no sense of a mobile phone nearby. There's no sense of social media interrupting you on Facebook. There's just a stillness about this image. The trees motionless. There's no wind. The moon is rising. And the father has his left hand lifted up and he's holding the arm of his little son, the hand of his little son. And to me, this is the universe, Hugh, and I'd love your concluding thoughts here, is that the universe is framed. It's actually framed. It's contained by and within the very hand of God. And to me, in this image, on the one hand, I see the astrophysics, but on the other hand, Hugh, I see the human touch. And is this not the, the point of the gospel? The human touch of the creator touching his creation. I'd love your concluding thoughts. I also see the beauty. I mean, this, this has an incredible impact anyone who looks at it, just realizing the beauty of the tree, the father, the sun, the background moon that you see there. And we see this everywhere within God's creation. I mean, you're not just an astronomer, you're also a mathematician. I mean, those mathematical equations have an elegance and a beauty to them. You know, I think that's why everybody needs to study some form of calculus just to see the incredible beauty that uh, God has brought in uh, to these equations that describe our physical realm. No matter, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, Every component of the heavens, every subcomponent also declares the glory of God. As you see in this picture, the moon is just one tiny piece of the heavens, but it mm -hmm. declares the glory of God. And I don't know of any astronomer who's not awestruck by what they see out there. But the question is, why are you feeling that awe? Why are you feeling that sense of incredible beauty and elegance? There's a reason for it. And doesn't that point you to a creator uh, who imbues beauty and elegance and joy and love? And I don't know about you, uh, David, but I've run into so many astronomers who are just captivated by their astronomical research, but captivated to such a degree that they become almost addicted to the research and therefore uh -huh. don't take the time to think, you know, why is the universe the way it is? And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I've even run into astronomers and I say, look, you're in your 50s. Have you ever thought about death? No, I'm just too focused and excited on my astronomical research. Have you ever thought about what's going to happen after you die? No, I don't think about those things. Mm. Have you ever thought about what's beyond the universe? No, I'm just so fascinated by what I'm studying. And that to me is the principle of the Sabbath. You know, we're to work six days and take that seventh day to focus on the most important issues of life. But as it tells us in scripture, that creation reveals God and his attributes, but it also can be an idol where it distracts us from the most important issues of life. God yes. created all this to drive us to those most important questions, 
And to me, that's the principle of the Sabbath. No matter how fascinated you are by your work or compelled by your work, take regular time off to really focus on the most important issues of life. That's so powerful, Hugh. And it also reminds me, as we wrap up, of the importance, as you've suggested, of hearing the still small voice of God. I never read in the Gospels that Jesus shouts to anyone. It's a still small voice. And right. I think that's the wonder of observing with some of the world's big telescopes in Hawaii. And I look forward to being so looking forward to being with you and then to traveling again to Hawaii. But the point is, we have to draw aside from the bombardment, do we not, of the interface of the mobile phone. Uh, when I tell people, look up at the skies, as you've already said, they can barely see the brighter planets, let alone the stars, as you've beautifully said. But when you really want to, if you really want to, understand, part of the mind of God, you have to hear his voice. And you have to remember, don't you, Hugh, that it's a still, small voice. Unless you take the time, you'll never really be able to look up in awe and wonder. That's a great way to complete this uh, podcast. Look up and see the glory of God revealed. And I remember uh, when we first saw your book in Galileo and looked at it and said, this is a book we want to feature at Reasons to Believe. So it's a book you can get from us at Reasons to Believe. And uh, David, uh, we go back 39 years. It was 1983 uh, when I first met you. It's been a privilege to have a partnership in ministry throughout the past 39 years. We're excited about you coming in person here at the Reasons to Believe as a visiting scholar. And so with that, I'm going to share uh, with all of you, hey, many of David Block's uh, books you can obtain uh, through us at Reasons to Believe. You can also get them uh, through the different, uh, you know, uh, dot coms like Amazon. They're available there. And uh, but again, uh, share this with your friends. Uh, all of these Stars, Cells and God episodes are archived on our YouTube and on our Reasons to Believe YouTube channel. Uh, so feel free to view this again and share it with your friends uh, at your convenience. And again, RTB underscore official uh, is your gateway to all the uh, public or social media uh, platforms we have here at Reasons to Believe. And so until next time, look up. Thank you. <laughs>